0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash (laughs) W-T-F. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What the fucking ears? What's happening? It's Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome. Welcome to the newcomers who are here for the Steve Albini episode. Interesting thing happened with the last episode. Aaron James Draplin from Draplin Design Company. It seems like there was a tremendous amount of uh, momentum and feedback about that episode. There's something um, almost exciting uh, to me about the idea that, that people may actually be getting sick of show business. It, uh, culturally, perhaps we're starting to get sick of the exhausting desperation of show business i look there's a lot of different versions of show business i believe i'm operating in somewhat of a showbiz adjacent situation of my own making and uh, i'm i'm happy with that but uh, after a certain point there's an intensity to it all to all the uh all the options, all the channels, all the streaming content, all of it coming at you all the time when you turn it on, moving billboards that actually seem to uh, be large televisions in and of themselves. Just the constant sort of visual and mental crackling noise of, hey, over here. Yeah, that, that, that's sort of like the, the underlying pitch of all content now. Yo, hey, 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 over here. Oh, oh, oh look over here. That that's really the undercurrent of all content just about and 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 what goes into getting people to watch it hey buddy buddy yo yo, yo. over here over here just watch this watch this just watch this just watch this for a minute just watch it for a minute come on just stay here for a minute people liked hearing about a different medium a different zone a different mode design it was interesting to me it was exciting to me to Talk to a guy that pulled it together like that and creates things. And, and maybe that's a direction I got to go into a little more. I've always wanted to. But then I got to go out of the box. I got to go out of my box. Come on. Look at this thing I made. I made a thing. It's so fucking. It. Come on. Just fucking look at it. Tonight on NBC. Come on, you fuck. Come on. Look at We did a thing. Come on. Look, look, look. Tonight. On ABC. Hey, 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 Amazon. Hey, look, look at this thing. I got up. oh, you made it with, with, CBS. Please look at this thing, Hulu. <laughs> come on, come on, look at, look, 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 look. IFC. All of them. And I don't think I'm being negative. I just think it's very difficult to hold people's attention, but I don't think you should necessarily play to that. Oh, hey, in the James Taylor episode, there was a gunshot at the end, and a lot of you seemed concerned, as you should be when you hear a gunshot, either recorded or not, uh, and you wanted some closure on that. Uh, there's been many people asking, "What did you ever find out what the gunshot was? Uh, short answer no, I did not. Did I investigate what it might be? I did not. Uh, am I freaked out about it? Not really. Uh, you know, gunshots happen around here uh, occasionally, and uh, you just hope they're celebratory and not pointed at anybody. So uh, I, I have no idea. It, it, it definitely sounded like a gunshot, but you never, maybe it was someone's birthday. So I, so no, I don't know. But everything's been cool since, okay? I hope that sates your concerns. All right. Um, What else? Pow! I just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop. Just threw that in. I don't do them as much as I used to. Look, it's coming. It's happening. It's happening. We're moving towards it. Today's Lorne clip is uh, actually a pretty fascinating clip because it... uh, it, it, it helped me out. It got me some, some closure through some honesty from Jim Brewer. This was uh, episode 435 of this show of WTF, and uh, he definitely seemed to have some info about my meeting with Lauren Michaels. He gave me just a little bit of clarity around that meeting with Lauren and why things might have turned out the way they did. Now I assume a lot of you are are you are are up on the narrative. We're moving towards the Warren Michaels episode that that many of you who have listened to me for years know is a is a pretty important thing to me. Those of you who are just tuning in for the Albini uh, Steve Albini talk, I imagine you've fast forwarded already. So this is me uh, talking to Jim Brewer on episode four thirty five of this show.
1: You were up for SNL as. Yeah. As the news guy. Right. And Lauren sat me down. And Lauren sat me down and I, I swear to God, here's how that it went. He went, uh, he goes, Jim, we're thinking about using Mark Marin as our as our the update guy. Do you have thoughts on him? It's exactly what I said. I went <sighs> Um Okay. I think he'll be the best news guy you've ever had in your life. I really said that. Yeah. I said, but I you need to know a lot of people have problems with him. I go, he, he pisses people off, but that has nothing to do with me. And I said, if he's if he's for the news guy, I think you got a home run. Yeah. I go, am I best friends with him? No. Uh, <laughs> do I do I love the guy? No. However, the guy would be a monster. News anchor. Oh my god! I really feel that way, Lauren. And he's like, no, that's pretty much the feedback I get from everyone. I said, did you did you meet with him already? Now I don't know if he said this or you said this. Huh. Something about monkeys. I feel like he said. I feel like he told me this. He said, he he said to me, uh, he said he met with you, and I said, well, how would it go? And he said. Well, I, he said uh, everyone enjoys a monkey or something until they throw the feces at you. Or or he said that. No, I said that to him. He said, comedians are like monkeys.
0: Yes. And everybody, it... everybody, the monkeys make people laugh. And I said, unless they're throwing their shit at you. <laughs> which,
1: which when he that said- stuck with him? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Come on. You fucking with me now? No, I swear to God I'm not. I swear to God. And I, that made me- really like you (laughs) come on i swear to god and and then i
0: you know i'm obsessed with that meeting you know i mean i talk about it all the fucking time i'm obsessed with that meeting with lauren
1: he sat me down Mm -hmm. and he he asked me about you and he asked me about tracy morgan yeah because we were there the same day and i said tracy is the most raw funniest human beings I've ever met in my life off stage, Lauren. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever laughed so hard. Just off stage. I said, I I just listen to him rant and I just find myself I feel like I'm looking at a Richard Pryor, but it's it's raw. Yeah. It's on stage is a different beast. Right. Off stage, I, I've never seen anything more fascinating in my life. And he goes, Now Mark, what about Mark Maron for the update? And
0: I really got so he was really thinking about it. Because I, I oh, thought yeah because I thought, like, you know, in retrospect, that he might have been, you know, trying to muscle Norm into something or whatever. But because I didn't get it, obviously. They're, they but were I, done I, with Norm, yeah. They were done. They were done. Yeah. See, now look, I can deal with that explanation. At least there was a reason. I never would have thought Jim Brewer would be the key to unlocking the mystery. But there you go. The, the, the number of Lauren Michaels conversations I've had on this show is astounding. Dig it. All right, Steve Albini coming up. How do I preface Albini? You know, Albini, Steve Albini is one of these guys. He's a legend. He's a, a living myth in the rock and roll uh, arena. He's a producer that uh, is wary of calling himself a producer. He's a guitar player. He's a, a fixture in the world of modern, an important gear in the machinery of modern music in my mind. Though a very humble gentleman, intense. And I know a lot of you who, uh, who are... Deep music nerds have you know very specific expectations around what you want to hear from Albini. I had a good conversation with him, and uh, obviously some of the records that he made are, you know, were profoundly important in my life. Uh, you, you know, Pixies, uh, Nirvana, the breeders. There's hundreds of records. Hell of a resume, this guy. But one of the most important things to me, when I was in college, I can't even put a date on this. But it's got to be the mid-80s, and I'm thinking he's probably in big black. Maybe I don't know. But I know that I went to see Steve Albini at the Ratskeller in Boston, Massachusetts, in Kenmore Square. I was going to BU. I'm thinking it's got to be 84, maybe, 83, 84. I don't remember being with anybody. I remember uh, going down there, drinking. I was probably with somebody. I remember Steve albini standing in the middle of that little stage you go down in the basement you walk past mitch at the door with his uh with his weird gray toupee and his uh his voice box he had a voice box he's a large man you you know you just read a story into that guy he you know he had a always had a suit on looked like he might have been a little connected but he had the voice box how you doing check your id And then down in the basement was where the rat was, the real rock and roll club. Low ceilings, fucking dirty. The rat skeller, gone, gone. So I go to see Albini and I remember him just playing that fucking massive guitar sound. But the most important thing about that night in my mind, and I believe it was that night, things get a little blurry, you know? As you get older, you realize you're just a, a curator of misperceptions and altered memories. But I went to that Steve Albini show. And then in the, in the crowd, moving through the crowd, was this woman. But I, I didn't see her at first. All I saw was this fantastic black mohawk. And then just, just I, I, as I followed the black mohawk down, the shaved sides, I saw this intense, round, angry face and this stout kind of little tank you know, down to the docks. To the Doc Martens and the black jeans, and I was like, "Holy fuck, who is that?" And it's not, you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that I had any game then, or certainly I had any real sort of couth. I, I always you know, moved through the world with the the same type of intensity I have now, only younger, which was probably even more disconcerting. And I just went up to her and I'm like, "Who are you? What is what what?" And uh, her name was Lauren. And I fell in love with her almost like immediately at that Steve Albini show. I'm gonna put it I'm gonna put it into I'm gonna put it on that show. And I just remember we walk home and she's kicking cans and you know, just meh, just like this angry little art woman girl at the time. She was going to mass art. She was telling me stories about her ex. That, like maybe her ex or current boyfriend, I don't know, who worked in, you know, sort of large soft sculptures and they'd, you know, maybe she had some story about living out in the country in a trailer, devious and weird. She was from New Jersey and just full of this angry intensity. But uh, she was a welder and I've told the story about, you know, going to her house that first time, just completely enamored with her. And she had a sculpture that she had done in metal just emaciated metal female figure and the vagina was just full of nails and i was like yeah all right i can handle this loved her still love her see her sometimes uh still doing the art but you know has a life with a man we all get old and hopefully level off but man that night that steve albini concert just seeing that black mohawk kind of cut through the crowd like a, like the fin of a shark
1: like what
0: who's connected to that she changed my life so now uh let's go and uh talk to steve Albini. <laughs> Beanie. You want you want to wear cans?
2: Sure. Cans. I love those studio terms. Cans.
0: cans. Do you call them cans? No, no one calls them cans. No one does?
2: No, of course not. Come on! No, no one says take five either. Nobody says that. Come on, I, I mean, radio guys
0: say cans.
2: Well, okay. The music guys don't.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, okay. All right. I learned something. What do they call them? Headphones? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right.
2: In, in in many, I've learned how to just by being a recording engineer. I, yeah. I've learned uh, a few useful studio expressions in many languages. Yeah. Like what? In Dutch, for example. Yeah. Zet je koptelefoon op. Yeah, what which did... mean, means put your headphones on. Cop uh-huh. telephone. Okay, that's cop his head, and that's uh, that. These are cop telephone.
0: And you learned that from recording
2: Dutch guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you remember what Dutch guys? Uh, I think it was the Dutch heavy metal band Gore. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Is there a possibility I got to ask you a couple questions right up front? Would you have been touring? I met a girl in college who who it was very important to me, and I met her at the Rat. Yeah, in oh,
2: Boston I played there many times.
0: As yourself though like would you have been touring as Steve Albini in say 84
2: 85
0: no no no, no. no 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 would it, big my,
2: black in 85 I would have been in big
0: black in So was family. you cuz I remember I was like I was at a Steve Albini show and I met this chick with a black mohawk and you know in in the rest is history man. sounds about right yeah. yeah
2: Yeah so you remember that huh I don't know I don't remember the chick with a black mohawk
0: <laughs> the, Come the, on you got it We were yeah. both standing there I no
2: mean, The rat was a shithole. I don't know I mean as a it was one the, it kind of typified the era of like punk venues, where there were there were sort of two kinds of punk venues. Yeah, there were places that were sort of of the community where you had guys that were in punk bands yeah. that, um, like coerced a, a bar owner into letting them have a night, and then they sort of developed into a uh, thing, a thing. Yeah, and it and it gathered momentum, and you had you had so you had clubs where the the punk bands were welcome, right? Because the people that were running the scene were sort. Of, and then the other thing was that you had the shittiest bar in town where you could get away with stuff yeah and so the shittiest bar in town yeah. ended up being a punk club like the like, basement yeah like the rat like the rat for example i mean pretty good example the 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 dude that ran it had one Mitch of the, had one of those yeah. yeah
0: and the big hair the toupee i think yeah. his name
2: was Mitch yeah and uh it would routinely just decide not to pay the band is at that the end true of the night. yeah and he'd go into his <laughs> office and he'd, he'd Clicked the little buzzer on his throat, and he like, There's no way you're getting the money. Right. <laughs> and they had, they had the like the bouncers. There was a weight room upstairs where the bouncers would all be like working out. So you'd have these like, you know, these like yard wide meatheads, you know, standing on either side of him while he's like sitting at this, you know, the sort of melted elephant of a dude sitting behind his desk, and he's like, "The show didn't do well. There's no way you're getting the money." <laughs> That is, and then you just have to walk. Well, yeah. I mean, what else are you? Gonna what are you, do? you gonna do with that you know, guy? <laughs> like, he'd say you know, he, you you know, would offer you some pittance, like you know, like I'm losing money, but I'll give you gas money. You know that sort oh, of thing. It's like it was it was a, you know it was like kind of a routine scenario that never happened to us because you guys mercifully. were popular. Not so much that I think we it was kind of the luck of the draw. Like we we. Um, even even in the '80s, it yeah. was, you could figure out how to schedule a tour so that you would hit a town on a night when people would be willing to go out. You know, like, and so we structured our tours in a way where you would play. The bigger towns on the better nights, and then the crappier towns you'd play midweek, and uh, because a, a punk audience in a crappy town is going to go out any night of the week that a band comes through because they're ecstatic that someone's bothered. You right, know, right, they're here. Yeah. They're in our town. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, like you could play, you know, uh, the, a fat spot in the road in, yeah. you know, Kansas or Indiana on a Tuesday or Wednesday, and you could expect a, a sort of normal crowd. Whereas if you're playing in Friday or uh, playing in Chicago. Uh, you know, people have a lot of their, a lot of other options for their uh, for their it's, entertainment it's, dollar. As it's, it were. it's kind of wild, though, man. That whole that whole even all the cities that were
0: music cities, it, all that scene is just sort of gone, isn't it? Mm. Not at all. Yeah.
2: No, I mean it's it's like, but like you go to Boston and the the entire Kenmore Square is leveled. Okay, well, Boston is a special case. There there was a um, a monopolistic control of live music venues. Um, uh, what was the name of the company? Don Law was that the name of the company? Don Law, yeah, yeah. They have mon- monopolistic control of music venues, even the small ones. Yeah, it, it, basically, every suitable room. I mean, it's the same sort of thing that happened on a national scale with Clear cha- uh, Channel uh, or Clear Channel Live Nation, Nation yeah. like sort of taking over venues and just exerting a, the a, airwaves. Or it can just be like a, a closed society of club owners and music people right. that won't allow anybody else, any you know, independent people to operate. You hear a noise. I do. What is it? Is it in the world or in your mic? Leaf blower. You've got leaf blower noise. Yeah, yeah. Why they they have it? a filter for that.
0: Hey, Dennis. It just happened spontaneously. Oh, now he's blowing out his fountain. <laughs> oh, shit. Hey, Dennis. Dennis. He's the guy that suggested I put an on-the-air light on the side of my garage.
2: This will be my favorite part of the broadcast, for sure.
0: Hey, Dennis! Dennis, can can I interview for like an hour? No, I'm sorry, dude. I did, I'm just doing another one. I'll be done in like an hour. Now come do it if you want. <laughs> so is this punk rock enough? Sure. <laughs>
2: Fuck. So, did you come from around here? Well, in a circuitous way, my folks uh, came from California. My dad went to Caltech, and when he finished his graduate work at Caltech, we, he started having kids. We lived in Pasadena. Uh, it's like down the street. And but I, I was the last kid and almost and very shortly after i was born i think i was less than a year old we moved to washington dc so i i remember nothing right how many kids are there i have a a brother marty who's two years older yeah a sister mona who's one year older and that's it oh three and And then um we moved to washington dc and then In the mid-1960s, we moved back to Santa Barbara, and I I remember some about Santa Barbara. I was there for, I was maybe six, seven, eight years old, something like that. And then we, or five, six, four, five, and six, something like that. I remember some of that. Right. And then we moved back to Washington, D.C. area. My dad worked as an engineer in aeronautics and um, doing some defense department contracting. So the secret work, did you get Uh, that? Like, I can't talk about... Well, he didn't bring his work home. Right. But it, some of it was literal secrets. Like, he worked on the Titan 3C missile, and he worked on... No shit. Yeah, he worked on a bunch of stuff for the Star Wars bullshit. Really? Did, like he, talk to, did he talk Did to you about that later? He can't really... He couldn't so really... This, well, he's, he's dead now, I'm but he, he couldn't really talk about it, like, specifically. Yeah. But um, it the thing that was odd about my father was that he was an engineer he's a brilliant brilliant engineer and his, his the thing that gave him the most satisfaction in yeah. life was solving the hardest problem so he wanted the hardest problem and he was eager to have the hardest right so and the thing about the whole star wars technology was that it was is essentially impossible right. like to do what what was being right. postulated as easy and as like the that, saving that rate. was the
0: shield in space with exactly the satellites. it was right.
2: shooting a bullet with a bullet like that or whole, shooting that down whole con- the missile yeah right that whole concept yeah was essentially impossible right but and as a result it was like the hardest problem right so my dad was like super eager to work on it right <laughs> uh uh so he he was spending all of his energy in this like this ultimately like completely futile effort uh-huh. but it was very satisfying for him to be like well that's going to be really difficult right uh i, I that's probably going to tie me up for weeks and, and then be in bliss you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but in, in it, toward the end of his life he he worked for the department of the interior working on the science of forest fires which is impossibly complex but in, in a very practical way you can you can make pretty significant. Uh, improvements in the way we we treat the forest and the way we treat fire. It, so, it, but not specifically about fighting them necessarily? No. Um, managing the resource of the forest uh-huh. so that people can use it and then it also doesn't become a threat to itself. Right. Uh, I mean, there was a, a long history of preventing forest fires at all cost, and That was like a sort of policy. And that was... Smoky the Bear, absolutely disastrous because Uh, fires are part of the life cycle of a forest. Right, and uh, then you know, mitigating the 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 damage done by these catastrophic fires that were started because we had allowed so much fuel to build up by putting out all the fires all the time. Yeah, like that became a part of the problem. And then just understanding the behavior of fire itself is where my father concentrated his his efforts, and he was a he was a, a renowned scientist in that regard. Very young science. There's still so much. There's, a, you know, we, we know way less uh, about fire than we thought we did, you know, really? from, and like from it, the efforts of the people it, at the Northern Forest Fire Research Laboratory.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I know that
2: uh, once it starts. You just uh, got to wait it out sometimes. In, yeah. I mean, it, it's the thing that I like about my father's work yeah. in forest fire is that he took this incredibly complex problem and yeah. it created practical tools that people in the field could like, they could enter a few variables into a portable calculator, for example. Yeah. And using a, a a program that would, that was a reduction of all of this complex theory. Yeah. And then they could figure out how far ahead they had to go before they dug the fire line. Like that sort of like very practical. Yeah. Very, yeah. very, you know, like, oh, well, that house is doomed. Let's move on. You know, things right, like that. Right. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Make those
0: big decisions. Yeah. That one's, a,
2: we're going to lose that yeah. one. What is your training exactly? I left, I, so the working in the forest fire brought our family working with forest fires brought our our family to montana and i did my principal growing up in missoula montana i have
0: no idea what that even looks like
2: it's beautiful it's like if you, is it if you if you picture like god's plan for the earth right oh yeah. really mountains and trees and yeah like rolling grass and rivers and massive lakes and you know beautiful snow caps like Montana has all of that like it's a, there's a high desert there's yeah. lush uh, coniferous forests You I, love Montana. I mean when I was there sure I was into punk rock and it seemed like extraordinarily frustrating to be in right. um, you know a place that has you know it's it's really its only characteristic is the the people and the natural beauty and, and what I separate. wanted was I wanted yeah. like dope fiends and hustlers and you know <laughs> where's the good stuff
1: yeah. where are so, the freaks at
2: so uh, i left to come to chicago to go to school in, uh, in 1980 and I've so you in, left missoula i've been in chicago ever since you went to high school in missoula i went you went to high school in missoula i went to college in chicago at northwestern university and, and studied what journalism uh, so okay so you're in missoula and uh, when, what was the moment where you knew there was something bigger and more exciting out there um, I, it's weird because I've had to recall this moment for interviews, and, uh, yeah. you know, so it's now become crystalline in my memory. Well, like, then let's go do a, a week or so before
0: it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, like um, my circle of friends and I in, yeah. in high school, we were all like, you know, dorks into like horror movies and, you know. So and, you were with the nerd crew. Yeah.
0: Anti-jock. Su- super, super dorks, you know, yeah.
2: in the school newspaper, sarcastic Uh Were you bullied? I mean... I was hated i wasn't physically attacked hated? very often hated yeah, for yeah, sure. what
0: reason uh being i was smart? kind of a loud mouth yeah. yeah
2: which is i mean that's you know so, that's, so you were you're an aggressive nerd yeah oh good i mean that i i've recognized that as a character flaw and i've i've you done what water? i can to sort of ameliorate it really know? the anger no 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 the being an asshole like just feeling like it was really important that everybody in the room knew what i was thinking uh. all the time right like i got i got that out of my system <laughs> when i was in high school and did you have to get beat up for it no although when i was in college um i i was still drinking when i was in college and uh i got into this thing where i i, I really enjoyed taunting the fraternity people and the fr- like the fraternity System. I mean, I, sure. I, I drew cartoons for the school newspaper, you know. Oh, really? Ridiculing yeah. and insulting it. Yeah. And, but uh, they threw fantastic parties where yeah. bands would play and the booze was free and women Kegs. would appear. Yeah. Know. So everyone exploited the fraternities as a kind of a social resource, right? Right. You you would go to the parties.
0: You'd be like, we'll go to the frat house. But if we just the five of us go, you're insulated in your crew of friends. Amongst the idiots, yeah.
2: I would go typically with a friend of mine named John Bonin and I would go to these parties and we would be like the two weirdos in the funny clothing. And I can't remember what the precipitating incident was, whether I published some cartoon mocking the fraternity system yeah. or something um but my friend john and i were at one of these frat parties and we were taking advantage of all the free beer and music and women and that sort of thing and that kind of a ripple went through the all the greek <laughs> douchebags yeah. you know like yeah. like oh that albini guy is here yeah. you know right <laughs> the dude and then did the thing they sort of started to congregate around the two of us. And I don't know how I did it. In it's like probably the only moment of judo in my entire life. But I managed to extricate myself from this closing circle of Greeks. And then all of us threw my friend John out of the party as me. And I, and I stood with the mob on the balcony shaking my fist at that <laughs> Albini guy that we had just thrown out of the party. So that's like the, the only clever thing I've ever done in my life. Was well, everybody okay? Did John make oh, it yeah. out all right? Yeah, it was fine. It was, it was a, 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 an
0: interesting, uh, almost... Uh, uh, not cowardly but you know oh, shit. absolutely
2: cowardly yeah absolutely I mean it let John take the hit and he, you know he yeah. forgave me he understood the situation perfectly but know. they were too fucking stupid to know the difference Exactly. I mean they didn't they, they just wanted you know it's typical like right wing mob mentality they just want someone to take the blame instantly yeah. and then they can forget about the you know whatever sure. the underlying issue is they can just move on isn't it
0: yeah. interesting how you see that stuff like you know in retrospect now that we're older you see that that, that it's all set up at such a young Age that you know, the fraternity, the fraternal fraternity system is designed to create a brotherhood of douchebags yeah. that will take care of each other throughout life. And
2: you know, it, whether it's those specific douchebags, it's that whole it doesn't matter that we're wrong, we're together, you That's know, a, yeah, it, sure, that mentality that and we that, can win and incorporate, you know, like you hear, you know, that you hear that in sort of corporate motivational speech and all that sort of stuff, you hear that same sort of like group identity nonsense. And it's all typically being fostered by an authority figure, like from above. Like all of you people who work yeah. for me, n- right? Need to see yourselves as a team. <laughs> exactly.
0: So, all right. So you're there. You're in Missoula. You're just like what kind of what kind of music are you listening to before the Enlightenment? I didn't. I wasn't really not si- at all.
2: I wasn't significantly interested in music until I discovered the Ramones. Uh, yeah, the, the Ramones were were um, a touchstone for me. Right. Um, my brother had left for college and he left behind his collection of records, which were typical hard rock records of the year, you know, Alice Cooper The Who. You like that though, D- though, right? Yeah. I mean I mean that was Just formative that, for me. Listening sure. listening to that stuff was formative to me. Yeah. I mean my sister my sister had like schlock records i mean oh, not, right, no not a patch on my sister i think she's a wonderful woman and she's very intelligent like elton john and yeah good good example like gordon lightfoot you know oh, sure things, sure a lot sure. of the stuff wreck that, of the edmund fitzgerald or yeah. previous now and all of that stuff has its charm sure but you know when you compare gordon lightfoot to alice cooper yeah you know gordo yeah. gets a bloody nose that's so right it's, yeah, so, yeah and, it's and, the hell of
0: a chasm there. yeah <laughs> so uh how old are you I'm 52. I'll be 53 in a couple of days. So we're the same fucking age. I'm 51. So we grew up, and we, even when we were growing up with that stuff, it was already kind of old when we were in high school. Oh, yeah, most yeah. of it. Yeah. That's the weird thing. I can't. I can't. Really, I think when we were in high school, so you're a year ahead of me. We we saw the death of disco happen. We saw it, and then we saw new wave happen, and then punk just
2: sort of got left out for where I was. The Had thing. To, the thing that seems strange to me is yeah. like if you look at the there's a if you just look at a timeline. Yeah. Like from Woodstock to the CBGB era, yeah, was only like six or seven years. Holy shit, that's like it's true. kind of incredible. That's true. I know? never really thought about that. And then if you think about it, like b- b- from you know from Bill Haley to Woodstock, is only 11 like years. 10, 11 years. Yeah, right? yeah. And I- I've been flogging the same bullshit for 30 years now. And I feel like I, I still feel contemporary, you know, which is absurd. And, you know, it should be it should be impossible. No, you
0: it's know? not. No, I don't. I don't I'm not going to. It's not flogging the same bullshit at some point. But it is always peculiar to me to realize that rock and roll in earnest it's like 57 1957 or there, so yeah. right rock around the clock or rocket 88 which sure. whichever one you attribute the beginning to and it's still so fucking young like all you it's i never really put it together like that how much it just sort of blew up over yeah, time
2: the the like the aggressiveness of evolution in the early stages of rock you know from you know late 50s you've got skiffle in the uk and like rock and roll and you know yeah rockabilly stuff in america then mid-60s you have the british explosion then immediately followed by like the pop music side of that like sort of melded in or dissolved into the psychedelic period where you had like radical yeah. stuff happening yeah going into the 70s where you had like the prog stuff which is also radical a lot of it you know preposterous but a lot of it still very were adventurous you, were you, are you know. into it no, not specifically, but I can yeah. recognize that there are fringe elements of prog rock that I f- I find fascinating. Like the, who? like the kraut rock stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, like Can yeah. and Tangerine yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Dream, yeah. work and all that stuff. All of that stuff is a you know organic. Crimson? No crimson. Yeah, it has its moments. Right? <laughs> uh, and just the other day, we were listening to. I don't know how it happened, but Bob's yeah. Bob's iPod was on shuffle in yeah. the van. And we played roundabout by yes, yeah, no round right, and around right. I wait for that part, that right. song by itself, yeah is essentially the entire career of the band Rush condensed, you know, <laughs> and executed to perfection. Like it made Rush yeah. unnecessary. Yeah, really. they, well, yeah, they were kind of unnecessary. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, that's the... That, that's a van conversation. But that's a very small number in physical time. But were you excited when you guys came up with that in the van? when you? you oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: that's like a,
2: we have well, We great. have a couple of van rules, van music rules. Yeah. One of them is that if a song starts with cowbell... Yeah, you turn it up. Yeah. Because the number of great songs that start with a cowbell is extraordinary. Like the batting average for starting with a cowbell. It's like a it's like a very good We're Sydney an American fire. band. Right? Honky Tonk Women. Uh, right? Um uh Mississippi Queen. Oh. Like basically it's really really hard that to oh, hit, to miss if yeah. the song starts with a cowbell. It's and we got fooled once by in we were in Europe. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever listened to European popular radio no, but no, I haven't. like they play music a very weird pastiche music so yeah. this is in the you know in the two thousand something yeah that, um we hear yeah cowbell so it right. starts with cowbell yeah fucking turn it up right? right yeah so and and it ended up being lover boy everybody's working for the weekend Oh, like such a downer to like whipped in like, you're so excited and then we realized that the paradigm had not actually been broken oh, yeah. because it wasn't a real cowbell it uh, was the metronome huh the metronome they were using a metronome cowbell drum machine okay, so and they you, just left it in so we're still safe
0: so you just disp- how how much research did you have to fig- to figure that out
2: uh it it became apparent over oh, the okay. course of the song like oh that song is so bad it must have been done to a metronome that cowbell isn't really a cowbell we're off the hook you know well when
0: you okay so you 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 get your mind blown coming back around so we actually did it coming back around to the moment where you got the ramones record right well you had an older brother which thank god right
2: yeah i mean the records are important yeah where did the ramones album come from a friend of mine or an acquaintance of mine on the school bus had a cassette tape in one of those little portable accordion button cassette players panasonic I, I don't know you know sure. with, the, with the buttons at the end exactly yeah, had, like, yeah little sure accordion buttons on yeah the end. yeah and he had a ramones tape in it and we were listening to it on the bus and and we were laughing our asses off it was like the most hilarious thing we'd ever heard this inept bubblegum music just played right super ferociously like yeah. you know it's w- what a you know what a perfect comedy that was for us we were ma- mocking everything and this was a thing that mocked everything and itself you know right so it really resonated with me and i i ordered my own copy of the record from the record store and then when it came i played it obsessively And at first it was it was comic right you know at first i was like laughing at the ineptitude and the yeah and, you know and then somewhere around the 10th or 12th iteration of playing that record obsessively i realized that it was actually perfect and the greatest record ever made the first ramones record yeah. and at, from that point on like i i saw the world differently well what? what what changed what, what perfect in what way in your mind um it, it sounds kind of high-minded to attach all of this stuff to a band or a record why not but no. yeah it's um, what we do here the it's our job the ramones the 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 subject matter of the yeah. ramones music was all the same sort of childish shit that my friends and i were talking about right. you know like you know outsider culture um Trials, trash, trash, popular culture—you yeah. know, horror movies, yeah. comics, like yeah. s- stupid, childish shit that we had clung to, and that we were still that, we, that that we had kind of imbued with this significance in our in our peer group, right? right. And the Romans were taking that stuff seriously. So then suddenly I thought, well, maybe I can take these perverse notions that roll through my mind seriously, like they're singing songs about, you know, a chainsaw massacre or about, you know, sucking dick for drug money or whatever, like whatever they're singing about. Like, I mean, that that's legit then like I can entertain those thoughts in in my own head. I don't have to suppress them. I don't have to like not consider those part of my useful vocabulary. Right. So it, it made me take my own musings and ramblings seriously and then by extension I had to take seriously other people's insane obsessions and musings and ramblings I it it made me take other people different from myself people who didn't fit the paradigm of like sort of seri- mainstream mainstream serious Roy. people yeah I need, in, in all all aspects of my life I'm, I'm not joking when I say that it made me that it changed the way I thought about the entire world right it gave you almost an aesthetic in yeah a sense or, or an understanding and as a social awareness like uh you know it had never occurred to me that somebody would have to suck dick for drug money like it never occurred to me until and then i realized oh yeah i guess under a certain set of circumstances that becomes a viable option and also maybe a career you know okay (laughs) how old old were you like 14 you know (laughs) this is important shit
0: yeah like i think i got this it's weird because i'm thinking about something in my own life it would have been like
2: national lampoon or something yeah and and that that was also like that was also part of my peer group like we were all really into national lampoon right you know it's it served served the same sort of cultural purpose that mad magazine did in the, in the late fifties or sixties, yeah. you know? Right. And you know, uh, by taking all of these offshoots of lefty or free thinking culture seriously, like it, it genuinely forced me to reassess my interactions with every other person. Like I didn't, I was, I tried not to be as, as instantly judgmental in some instances, but in some instances, I was much more, more so. judgmental, like immediately dismissive of people who seemed square and hidebound and douchebags. Yeah, and or you know just frozen into a, a, a pre-existing paradigm. Right, like uh, those people seemed like suckers to me. Right. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know? And and frightened suckers in yeah. a way. Like just uh, yeah. but well, that's the that's the weird thing about because I imagine you know having been in music and, and recorded uh, as much as you've had and, and, and experienced people that either some of those meatheads get their minds blown
2: yeah it might happen later right but they're not all hopeless no you you know and uh you know and i think and i you know i shudder to think what my life trajectory would have been had that moment on that school bus not transpired like what 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 would have happened to give me that kind of a you know while i was in malleable state you know when you're a young teenager and you're forming your own personality like what other thing might i have latched on to that could have you know well, it seemed like but you had a have, different trajectory. Well, you know? might have, it might have been chess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, it didn't sound like you were going to be, a, like, a, a football player but, or anything. But, you know,
2: for example, like, my, my politics could have gotten radicalized. Uh-huh. Like, I, you know, I could have ended up a libertarian douchebag. Yeah. I, I could have. I mean, there are a lot of things. There's could still have, time, man, yeah. <laughs> for that one. Like, a lot of things could have happened right. to, to give me an angle a prism through which i would see the rest of my life and it happened to be the ramones i'm incredibly lucky that it was the ramones right and underground culture yeah. rather than you know the young republicans or something you
0: right know? but but it sounds to me like you were you're were already a disruptive force and that you already had an innate suspicion of uh the hierarchy of power
2: and that kind of stuff right but i i think all of that energy you know, all, all, all of that intellect like any of that could have been right. di- directed in a in a different way
0: right all it would
2: have taken was one strong minded douchebag guy exactly. that you looked up to and then you're off it's it's like uh bill hicks said you know the the wrong friends and the wrong bar and anybody can be a bum you know yeah
0: that's true <laughs> yeah if in the right timing yeah
2: so all right so you you have this moment but you're not a musician at that time no and then the in in my little peer group we decided to start a band and we started a band and um, and did, no one knew how to play anything. Not really. I mean, we had a. What did you play? I played bass at uh-huh. that point, and because I had fewer strings than guitar, it seemed like it would be easier. <laughs> yeah, and it was. I mean, yeah. legitimately, that's a that's a. And you l- just taught yourself bass. I took. I had. I had two lessons from an instructor that was recommended by the guitar store where I bought the bass. Right, and he was also the cheapest instructor in town. Uh huh. <laughs> and the first lesson, he taught me how to tune the bass. Like, he showed me, like, physically how to tune the bass and what tuning it involved. And then the second lesson, he started to teach me the difference between a minor scale and a major scale. And at that point, I realized that I had learned enough. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So what was that band? That was a band called Just Ducky. And I, coincidentally, I ran into... Um, a woman who was the singer for that band, or oh, really? a singer for, for that band, uh-huh. uh, on this tour. She lives in Portland. Her name is Heather Goncher. She's a um, she's a structural engineer. Oh, really? She builds bridges and stuff. I wow. Kid, you know. So she got out. Yeah, yeah. She got out unscathed. <laughs> yeah. And everybody that was the thing that's cool uh, uh, that I've that has transpired again and again in my life is mm-hmm. I'll run into people that I thought were. Like smart and on the ball when they were like fifteen years old or whatever, mm-hmm. or eighteen years old or twenty years old. Or yeah. whatever. I'll run into them twenty or thirty years later, wow. and they're still smart and on the ball. And I still admire them, and I still think they're cool. Yeah, and maybe you haven't talked to them in twenty years. Yeah, and it's amazing how. I mean, I think it's true more for dudes than for women, but like a friendship that is that a, that a guy has with another guy, that friendship friendship just reinflates and becomes whole. After a span, after a span of like twenty or thirty years, no problem. Like you're just you're right back where you were. You know? I
0: think that's true. Like there, like there are guys that I know in my life that and I'm not, I'm not gender specific, but I mean they're mostly dudes that I know in my life where you just know it's not shakable. Like you, you know, yeah. you, and it, there's no like that you know a couple of people that get lost. Sure, drugs, sure, sure. religion sure. or something, but a lot of times they come out the but other even, side.
2: Even there, like you know, under the veneer of what they've applied, sure, it's the, it's same, still dude. the same, same dude. Same dude, yeah, you holding know.
0: on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get through. So, so at what point do you just you know break it open? Once you got the Ramones records, do you start just amassing
2: records. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky. I was lucky in that Missoula is a college town. Yeah, so in college towns, people like bring stuff with them from wherever they came and then they when they leave or when they need like weed money or whatever they like shed that stuff to the secondhand market right there were very good secondhand record stores in missoula there's one of the great record stores in the world. This place uh called rock and rudy's in missoula and that place um it came at that place came into full flower after i left but it is one of the great record stores you can you know it's, it's an emporium but while i was there there were still a bunch of secondhand record shops there was the sort of hybrids, Missoula had a lot of weird hybrid culture. Like there was one shop that had secondhand records, um, secondhand motorcycles, yeah, guitars and home wine and beer making equipment. Like that was this one, this yeah. one shop. It's one creative firm. off the grid stuff, you that know, you need. But at that time
0: I've talked to other cats who, who were in the original kind of American punk movement that, that, that it was really driven by a network of fans and people that, that needed literally to mail each other sometimes. Oh, or to, absolutely, yeah. And and the whole zine culture and, and like to get
2: actual punk records was sort of a chore. Yeah, and it was, and there was a, uh, you know, if you ran into somebody else who had cool music taste, like the first topic would be what are the cool records? And then they would start to, you know, there was kind of like this underground education that you would pick up like oh yeah this record blah 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 yeah 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 like like you'd go into a record store and the guy at the behind the counter would would recognize you from and it was you know from where you were looking and what you looked like right he would say have you heard this right like pull out a record you're always getting your mind blown like once a week it was terrific and and that you said earlier that that sort of network it doesn't exist anymore that the live music scene and the and the fan network doesn't really exist anymore I disagree wholeheartedly. It's just lighthearted. I'm not going to argue with it. It's just moved venues to the internet. And and now there are these very robust online communities and, and exchange, uh, you know, available, which has made for the exact same kind of interaction, just in a, in a non-physical environment, you know? And so you still like, you find a website that's about a band that you never heard about before. And in that, website, there are links to a bunch of other sort of proge- right. progenitor bands that are all interesting. I, I guess what, what I should me. have said is I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> you can't play that <laughs> shit with me.
0: <laughs> I guess I can. Yeah. Well, I, I, I know that's true, but is there is there something that's lost in it not being physical yes. like it used to? Yes. Uh,
2: like I, uh, the culture, the, the personal culture of the record store, I still value pretty highly. I don't go into record stores nearly as much as I used to, and that's on me. So when you started playing your drive was just to to be a punk rock guy to be Mm -hmm. a musician yeah i just wanted to I i wanted to participate in this mania That was evident from the records that I was buying and from the, you know, I I wanted to participate in it. But you didn't find it in Missoula. You had to wait till you went to college. I mean, we enjoyed ourselves in the band that we had in Missoula, but it, I mean, it it couldn't be described in any way other than failure. So (laughs) I think we played two gigs. That was it? Yeah. Uh, And one of them- (laughs) The short life. We played at a high school. Yeah. A high school booked us for a school, for like a, a, a dance or something. Yeah. Someone at the high school booked us. Right. And- midway through our show like maybe 30 minutes into the show the chaperone from the for the day like the, the you know assistant principal or whatever marched onto stage onto the stage yeah and presented our singer with uh, the check for our fee and said you guys can stop and leave and so we were actually cut off mid-set yeah. At one of our only gigs. That sounds like a successful punk performance. <laughs> it sounds like
0: it did exactly what it was supposed to do. And even then. We it were, shook them up. Do you remember what song might have been the one
2: that pushed them over the edge? I know that we did a cover of the cramp song, Human Fly. Uh-huh. And uh, I think it was during the Human Fly. that, <laughs> yeah, the, that, that Our singer it. was interrupted. <laughs> but we were, even then, we were thinking two steps ahead. Yeah. We cashed the check at a Safeway on the way out of town, so that they wouldn't have time to stop payment on it. <laughs> oh, you think they would have? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why else would they? Why else would they do it? Right. Just to
0: get it. Get them out. Yeah, yeah. Get yeah. them out. Get them out the door. So when you got to college, you 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 were playing music and you were just
2: going yeah, to school. I was going to school. Uh, I was playing music. I why was, journalism exactly? Um, I had a kind of a romantic notion of journalism from being, you know. In the high school newspaper, and right. sort of idolizing, and it was it was a time when like um, Woodward and Bernstein mm-hmm. had sort of made an enormous political That's contribution. Right. So you were like fourteen and seventy six or seventy five, yeah. yeah. So, like it it seemed as though journalism could be uh you know a tool of change, and it seemed as though journalism could be important, and it seemed just on a fundamental level i thought writing down what happens now is important for the future right you know yeah and that just seemed like a, a a noble thing and my heroes at the time were you know journalists muckrakers and you know people who had had an effect on the culture on the greater culture and but the like, romans yeah and the romans right so uh i and i'm you know i did in fact pick a school that was in a big city where i assumed that there would be A a vibrant punk rock scene, you know, because I could have gone to Columbia and Missouri. Yeah. Which is another good journalism school. Right. Uh, but I didn't think there would be as much punk rock there, so I chose Northwestern, which is right next to Chicago, because I'm, I was certain there would be a lot of punk rock. In and Chicago. was there? Yeah, there was very, uh, very interesting, small but extraordinarily energetic punk scene. So you were just a kid hanging around. Uh, yeah, I was just going to shows. I mean, I tried to put together bands on my own, and I, you know, there were I was kind of not doing well at that. And I was in, I joined another band, and I got kicked out of that band. And then I started do, recording on Why'd my own. Why'd you get kicked out? Um i kept making fun of brian ferry i think that was the the last straw there was a couple that was at the core of the band and they were really a into, couple yeah, they were they rocks
0: and music really
2: into like you know that kind of british like sort of romantic high forehead yeah, yeah. kind of music
0: and I, I, <laughs> sports jackets <laughs> <laughs> and you were just relentless yeah fuck brian ferry basically
2: uh-huh yeah, yeah i mean Again, I as I've as I've matured, I now see the charms in some of that stuff, but at the time it just seemed really phony and pretentious and I didn't want to didn't want to have anything to do with it. Anyway, I got kicked out of that band. I started recording stuff on my own as Big Black and that's when I actually started to get involved in sort of, on a more like significant level in the music scene. In ter- in terms of recording and playing. And, and also and- playing out like we formed a live band, Jeff Pizzotti, the singer from Naked Ray Gun, who yeah. at the time was one of my absolute heroes. You know, that band was um, um, an earth-shaking band to me. Seeing Naked Ray Gunn perform in the early 80s was just, you know, every show was completely radically different. Like they would, they did one show where they were all tripping balls and yeah. the music was just like a sheet of noise you know yeah. and then they would do another show where it was kind of like this weird space rockabilly you
0: know? yeah yeah
2: and then they didn't they did one show where the four members of the band set up on little platforms in different corners of the room <laughs> yeah so they were like they were sort of playing like there's this confused crowd of like maybe 40 or 50 people in the middle of the room like nobody knew where to look
0: you know but that was exciting because you know experimental music at that time like because i remember in albuquerque where i grew up i you know i talked about it before i knew this guy who had this band that played twice a year called jungle red and was just two of them and there were you know doll parts and yeah. noise and and it was something they were
2: both wearing jumpsuits it seemed like such an open field at right the time. it seemed like limitless yeah you know and and that to me was stimulating and exciting and that like sort of embodied this mentality that i had like what i imagined the ramones meant by all of their stuff right seemed to be physically embodied by the bands and the culture that I saw in the punk scene in Chicago and it and it it validated my thinking it validated all these leaps of, of logic that I had made about how I should live and how I should think about people like when you're in the company of people like I, I came from Missoula Montana and I and I was not particularly like socially aware right and suddenly I was in the company of immigrants and queers and dope fiends and people that literally lived on the street and like that i'd never been around those people before and it and it completely opened my perceptions of what was possible like what kind of person mattered what what people could create from nothing you know it 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 was a life-changing experience getting involved in the punk scene so so the the ramones opened your mind to all
0: these possibilities and made you feel less alone in your own uh what you would have judged wrong-minded thinking perhaps exactly and then so you you go to chicago and then you see i see it in practice any like things that you could never conceive of exactly and just sort of like
2: of course there's room for this (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) like you you see a dude wearing a trench coat completely covered in mouse traps yeah and you think well that's, that actually looks really cool, you know? Or,
0: <laughs> As opposed to, what the fuck's wrong with that <laughs> exactly, guy?
2: Yeah. Or, you know, you go to a show and the, the singer from the band has a a, a a rat. Yeah. That is literally running around on his body while he's performing. Who is that guy? Uh, I think the band was called CHA, uh-huh. Chicago Housing Authority. And, that you know, who would do that, number right. one? And then when you see it in action, you think, well, why not? That actually, that's kind of, you cool, know, yeah. it's like a, it's kind of a gross version of Alice Cooper and his, and his Python, you know?
0: Sure. It's like, well, that's interesting that like when, when you see that kind of stuff happening and you realize there are precedents for it
2: in a or, way. Right. Or, but, but significantly you just, it's like. In the at the time there was uh, there were these paradigms. You know, there was disco music and right. rock music and the rock stars were these exalted, like sort of statuesque dudes and everything about them was mythical and phony and everything about it was giant and overblown and then like the disco scene just all of it seemed manufactured and phony. It seemed like it was a, a perversion of a genuine culture. Like, yeah, yeah. Like the 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 soul music and the gay culture seemed genuine to me. Right. And, and disco was just like fucking guidos you know yeah, it's just yeah. like you know douchebags and yeah. and it was it when you'd see like this the sort of mustache schmucks with their silk shirts like it's easy to be offended by that culturally right. sure right without without being offended by its by the the gay and soul music roots right. of disco right disco was an aberration and and, and, and was abhorrent now right? is this something that you've been
0: able to uh, uh uh forgive as you get older or does that remain
2: i i have friends who who identified with the under the social underclasses that were the antecedents of disco right? uh-huh. and some of those people have like sort of embraced the the more flamboyant diva aspects of disco. Uh-huh. And I find that, I find their embrace of it charming. So they're, the, the, the that music is, is still repellent to me. Sort of making it campy. I don't think it's camp. I think yeah. it's genuine. Like, uh-huh. it, it's sort of like the house music scene in Chicago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, the house music scene in Chicago was a genuine expression of underclass and um, sort of not just minority, but like, you know, people of different sexual identities that was a genuine expression of joy for them Mm -hmm. right and then it was stylized and co-opted and turned into a formula and it's easy to hate that formula right and it's easy to hate that exploitation but its initial expression in the clubs and in the garages in chicago i mean that's legit it's beautiful you know it has its own sure it has its own soul so when you're
0: doing when you put big black together um who were so naked ray gun was still playing you were playing alongside of these bands that you looked up to yeah and you became sort of a force in yourself and where were you recording the original big black records when he started recording music
2: i started recording on borrowed or rented equipment in my apartment and right. then i uh, it wasn't until the second big black record that we actually actually recorded my band in a studio i had been in the studio with other bands sort of helping them record stuff but what how'd you get the knack for that i mean why it, when you say helping what were you what were your original tasks well it, when you're in a band yeah eventually your band wants to make a demo or right. some sort of recording of yourself, right. right right and so right. it falls on somebody in the band to learn how to do that yeah and i just learned I, I volunteered so i rented equipment when i'm back in montana i would go to the guitar shop sure. the, and rent a tape recorder and rent some microphones like an eight track a four track four track and yeah. you know figure out how to set it up and then do some recordings and then and at the end of the at the end of it you end up with a recording of some yeah. kind yeah. you know so um i w- did that a few times and then did the same thing when i moved to chicago like i would do demo recordings for my friends bands or my band or and then once you develop those skills, you become an asset to your peer group. And yeah. Like, oh, he's that, that guy. He's done demo tapes for bands. You can get him to do your demo tape. And yeah. That, so then when you're in a band, all your friends are in band and bands and you end up doing this for everybody that you know mm-hmm. un, until over time it just evolves and eventually it becomes a profession. You know? Uh-huh. Like I, 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 I occasionally speak at recording schools and the audio departments of universities and stuff and people talk about their sort of like their career path yeah and if you if i chart like from when i first started doing these experimental recordings with my own band as the beginning of my experience in recording in the studio and stuff in like 1978 or something yeah or so um then i carried on doing that informally certainly never getting paid Mm -hmm. you know for quite a long time and then i eventually developed um, a relationship with some recording studios that would let me bring bands in to record them on a semi-professional basis. And then eventually I had enough work where I could actually quit my job. Right, And that didn't happen for almost 10 years. Like from, from 78
0: till 88, late yeah, 80s. Yeah,
2: 87, I think, yeah. is when I quit my job for the last time. What was your job? I was a photograph retouch artist at, at, a, a, at a place that did advertising imagery. Where'd you pick up that skill? Uh, I would, had been into photography when I was in high school and then when I graduated at Northwestern, I needed a job, and that I just bullshitted my way into it, and then learned it on the fly.
0: So you were you were a darkroom guy? Yeah, in I high work, school.
2: Yeah, yeah, me too. And I was into black and white and right? photography mostly. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then so then I was working for this company that did images for yeah. the advertising yeah. industry. Right? Sure, and so a lot of my time was spent you know, working on like the Marlboro man or the merit cigarette campaign or, you know, Salem, just getting the car right or two, stuff know. like the, there'd be a dude they'd photograph in the studio and then him leaning against a motorcycle. Right. right yeah. And then they'd have this like epic mountain Vista. You right. Know? Like, all right, take the motorcycle dude, put him there. Yeah. And then, so at the end of this little wooden cigarette that he's holding is a prop. You have to put put the fire on the cigarette. Right. You know, that kind of stuff. Like really, really mundane. Yeah. Really, But somebody has to do it, you know. And it was good good money. Yeah. Terrific money. Yeah. And so when I quit, I actually, it was actually, I I had tried to get my ducks in a row before I quit. Like I bought a house. I qualified for my mortgage and then I, you know, and then I quit. Yeah, so like it wasn't a matter of me trying to buy a house as a self-employed You still live in that person. house? Uh, no, I had to sell that house when I built the studio that I work in now but yeah. um I went from being a college student to being a professional in that business to being self-employed as a recording engineer and do I was doing recordings the whole time um but I I think the expectation now is that at the end of a say at the end of a university program you're qualified to work in an industry and then yeah. you can just get a job in that industry and that in specifically in recording, there's just so much stuff that you pick up in the saddle that I just don't. I don't think that's realistic. I don't. And and besides, there's just no jobs. Like no one is hiring recording engineers. You know? So
0: you you basically give lectures to tell the the class that it's like, look, it's a really a long shot, I and mean, what you're doing here is probably bullshit.
2: Well, the main thing is that if you're interested in it, you will pursue it anyway. Right. And anything. Then, yeah. And then you will find a way to make it part of your life.
0: But it's interesting to me that your your primary momentum was to be a musician.
2: Yeah, I mean the job was definitely a um, a means to an end of me playing music and being involved in that the music. That was your season. first passion. Yeah. Yeah. The way I the way I describe it is that um there are some people who want a career in music that is they want to be able to play music yeah, right. and, and have music pay their rent for them. Right. And then there are people, and I would consider myself one of these people, who I'm willing to work a 40-hour-a-week job in order to support my interest in music. The way some people would support a family, I support my interest in music. and what, That's playing, recording, whatever it may be. Yeah, whatever it is. And as a fan, especially in the punk rock scene where every, there weren't that many people and everybody had to do a lot of things, If you're one thing you're also another like if you're in a band you're also a guy that a contact for out-of-town bands booking gigs right if you're and if you're a contact for that well then you also have to handle printing up posters or flyers for the gig right and then once you're doing that well that's a small step from there to making record jackets and pressing up records and being a record label yeah and once you're doing that then it's a small step you know from there to distributing your friends records as well and so everybody basically everybody involved in music like evolved in the original punk rock in in the in the punk scene yeah had fingers in all of those areas like everybody that you run into that was in a band They would also like you know the guys in naked ray gun owned a pa that they used a public address system they used for their practice room yeah they would also rent it out for gigs and go do gigs as a as a sound company right you know and then the a bunch of the bands got together and they're like we're all pressing up our records and we're trying to sell them let's call ourselves a label put all of our records under the same label and then maybe we'll have more clout and so we formed a collective record label that was a record label, really, only in that they all had used the same P.O. box. Right. But every band was operating independently. What label was that? It's called Ruthless Records. Oh, yeah. And uh, that record label, you know, we put records out by basically all of our peers in Chicago. If they wanted to put a record out under the name Ruthless Records, they were welcome to. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, as long as they did all the work, no problem, you know? <laughs> but what it, what it allowed us, it allowed you to do is, like, you could call a distributor and say, hey... I've got these new, uh, there's, the, there's a new Naked Reagan record coming out next week, but you still owe us for these big black records or these effigies records that right. you bought, and you haven't paid that invoice, and we're not going to ship you any of the Naked Reagan records unless you pay those invoices. Now, the guy on the other end of the phone didn't know that Naked Reagan would send him the records regardless, right? <laughs> right. But I could still <laughs> say that, and I could still get paid. You were you the know. guy that did yeah. that. Sure, sure. <laughs> you you were the heavy well, you know, I was the least likely to get paid.
0: Let's right, put it that right. Way. <laughs> so you're telling me that, like, when you... By the time you recorded Surfer Rosa, the Pixies record, right. you hadn't quite quit your day job yet. No,
2: I was still working for a photo
0: lab in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, you know, you
2: were getting a reputation? I don't think... So. It, it It may look that way if, you, if you're looking... You know, in, a linear, in reverse chrono- chronologically, yeah, right? Yeah. But at the time, I was I was essentially unknown outside of the very small circle of people who were into making records. But the you know. Pixies were out of Boston, right? Yeah. So how did they find you? Their record label was in England. There was yeah. a, another Boston band called the Throwing Muses. Got, I remember them. They got signed to an English record label yeah. called 4AD.
1: Right.
2: And the Throwing Muses people were friends with the Pixies people. Uh-huh. And they said to their record label, here, here's this cassette from this other Boston band you might be interested in, they got signed on the basis of that cassette before they'd really established themselves as a performing band. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know how many shows they'd done at that point, but they weren't a, a weren't a known quantity, right? And then their first record came out. It was an EP that was called from that cassette. It did some business and established them somewhat. And when they were fixing to do an album, their English record label, uh, sort of essentially. Sent my name down from above and said you should talk to Steve Albini about doing your record. I don't think they had ever heard of me. I right. don't think they knew who right. I was, you know, sure. Which I, I wouldn't have taken that as an insult at the time. I would have been completely normal. For yeah, me. right. You know? So then I contacted them. I heard their cassette. I thought they were an interesting band. I thought I could probably work on the record and do okay. They were one of the first bands that I worked on where they weren't part of my immediate peer group. Uh huh. You know, and uh, were you impressed with the music? Yeah, to an extent I thought of, I think that guy Charles I think is a distinctive songwriter. I thought he he had a, a, some odd ideas that I thought w- were underrepresented. Uh-huh. You know? And I I to this day I have a very close relationship with Kim Deal. I think she's got an absolutely magical voice. I I think she she is a genius and she thinks about music in a unique way. Uh-huh. Um I consider myself very close to her in terms of her uh her musical existence. Like I I really admire her. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that association. The the Pixies as a band, you know, they were fine, whatever. They were fine. I'm not, you know, I thought as a band, their music was kind of unremarkable. Uh-huh. Like, especially considering what we were talking about, like the extraordinary range of yes. experiences that you could have in the punk scene at the time. I I felt like their music was like fairly conservative. Well, that, but that record turns
0: out to be a great record. So, what, did you find in starting out that dealing with maybe something you couldn't say directly to their face, which is like eh, you guys are okay, that <laughs> well that that, uh, okay. that made you right. sort of compensate
2: well. I should point out that I was still pretty green. At no, the time I, of the, I know, of that but record, I'm just right? saying okay. like,
0: but is there a part of you that said, I'm going to, I'm going to pop this shit?
2: No, 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 not at all. Like I, even then I didn't think that I had, uh, uh, I, I didn't think I was able to, to, you know, make something into, you can't turn a, a sausage into a trout. You know, no. I, I didn't, I didn't have that, that kind of a delusion. I think I did insert myself, insinuate myself into the personality of the record a, a little much in my, in my, to my way of thinking. Into that record. Yeah. Like the little bits of recorded conversation that ended up on that record, and like certain sonic aspects of it, I think were were driven more by my ambition yeah. than the band's organic. And I've and that actually left a bad taste in my mouth, it, huh. thinking that you know for the rest of their career, this band has to answer for this all these little gags that are on their record uh-huh. that weren't their idea. But now they have to they have to go to their grave with that as hung on them as part of their legacy, right? Well, I'm sure that somebody
0: made it their idea. Well, do they always say like, nah, it was Albini? Well, regardless,
2: yeah. I I would know, right? You know that it that sure I did that to them rather yeah, okay. than them coming up with it, yeah. and so that helped to shape my current philosophy, which has been sort of since then. I tend not to insinuate myself too much into the personality of the record i tend not to try to exert very much control over music in the music i'm recording and i i would go as far as to say that i i try to avoid forming opinions about the music that i work on as an engineer because i think it's inappropriate i think um one of the experiences that i had with my friend's bands going into the studio during the punk era yeah was my friend's band would come into the studio and he would set up his amplifier and he would be playing and it would sound awesome. It would sound like that's what my friend sounds like when he plays his guitar, right? And then you'd see the engineer through the glass in the control room and he would like be sort of crinkling his nose a little and it would come out and, you know, you would see this sort of pantomime of a conversation between the guitar player and the engineer and it would conclude with the engineer reaching over and turning the amplifier down to satisfy himself. Like, you know, you you shouldn't play so loud. And then... You would hear this guy that you were familiar with in his music. He would play his guitar, and it wouldn't sound like him anymore. It would sound feeble. But the engineer would now have a smile on his face like, ah, I fixed it. Yeah. Right? So I've seen that mentality of the engineer trying to, like, use his tastes and his perception of the music. I've seen that be detrimental. If the band is really into something and they're doing something, they have a method that they've used to form the personality of the band. Right. I don't want to interfere with that. Right. And it's also, I mean, on one hand, it's none of my business because uh-huh. that's, uh, that's all internal stuff that goes on within the band. Like what, what their, what their aesthetic is, what their, how they want to present their music. And, uh, on the other hand, like my tastes are pretty fucked up. Like the music that I like that I listen to is, a um, is kind of absurd. Like, I like a lot of stuff that sounds like kind of a disaster. Like what? Well, we'd mentioned this band. End result, they were mm-hmm. a band from Chicago. Like uh, they were, a, you know, an aggressively experimental, noisy, um, outsider band. Very, yeah. very much outside—not just the mainstream music scene, but outside even the punk scene and the hardcore scene that was yeah. developing at the time. Truly odd, genuinely weird, beautiful music. Yeah, right? uh, if you. But uh, most people listening to it would just assess it as like noise and screaming. Uh-huh. But f- for me, it, I, I have an emotional resonance with it, and I think it's beautiful. Right? Yeah. So uh, if I tried to make other bands that are trying to make a conventionally pretty record, if I tried to make them sound more like end result, it would be a failure on, on both counts. Like, sure. It's, uh, it, it's like if you see a beautiful woman, and she's wearing a you know a, a pink frock, and has lipstick on and then you see a grizzly bear uh-huh. and you think well i wonder uh, maybe i should put lipstick on and, um, and a dress on that yeah. bear yeah, i mean right. you're, all you're going to do is piss off the bear right Yeah. and in the end it's not going to be any more beautiful yeah the bear, i get you know it. yeah yeah so so that's like i'm i try to, that's oh, how you gauge not interfering yeah i try to i try to let each band have their own have the experience of making the record that they want and also i try not to I've seen engineers like I've seen it happen where someone is trying to improve things and they diminish them, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I would rather have them be, uh, I'd rather have them be erratic and unpredictable and or uh, like not classically perfect in order for them to be more genuine. So, do you think though, as time went on,
0: I mean, you did a lot, you did several bands. Several records, you know, you know, Boss Hog, The Breeders, Jesus Wizard, you know, you did a lot of you know, people come back to you. Sure. Do you think your reputation in the music community was that let's go to Albini because
2: he's going to honor our exact sound or Albini's going to Albini it? Well, I think i flatter myself in thinking that i do a good job yeah right and i think that that's a baseline right that a lot of people have been frustrated by like a lot of bands just felt like they were treated ineptly right in the studio previously sure. so just if you listen to a, a record from a band that you're familiar with and you think wow that sounds sounds convincingly like that band mm-hmm. and then you look in the credits and it's me that did the recording that's very gratifying for me sure and also that might entice you to bring your band to me right? right so uh so i i like to think that that's a part of it like a, on a basic level i i do a good job secondary to that i'm also a bargain like for the for people in my position who do what i do i charge significantly less than most yeah. of the people who are you know have that kind of cv and have that kind of tenure and people have been doing it for as long and have the kind of facility yeah. available and that, that right so it's a bargain right right? so that's that's another (laughs) selling point that's that's the
0: but you like john spencer did a lot of the few records with you
2: yeah and they've got a pretty we're good friends yeah
0: yeah Yeah, i love those guys and you know did you do their last album no
2: i've I've worked on bits and pieces over the years i've i've rarely worked on an entire record start to finish with john because he's a he's a pretty creative guy and he has a lot of like he has he has a lot of procedural ideas about how he wants to do things and a lot of it is stuff that he just wants to pursue on his own and I th- I have a lot right. re- I have a lot of respect for that. But there's a lot of punch to it. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. I, I mean, and you can tell when you're listening to music from somebody who's really single minded, yeah. like somebody who's like kind of gripped by a mania yeah. of something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that to me, that trumps anything else. Like you can listen to uh, a, you know, a recording that from a classical standpoint is a bad recording. You know, it's distorted. It's just not, not full frequency response. It's not an accurate re- reflection of what was going on, blah, blah, blah. But you can feel the mania coming through it. Right. right. And that, to me, trumps everything else. Right. You, know? you need to feel that. Yeah.
0: Well, I, because like, you know, in my limited, under, you know, sort of understanding of, of what, in my mind, you represented uh, production-wise was that, there was you know whether it was with with nevermind or or maybe what do you did a wedding present
2: record didn't you
0: yeah i did yeah. a couple of records for them that there was this sort of wall of of sort of the the guitars were you know up front but that's mm. not that's
2: me just reading into you well and what you're what you're picking up on is the aesthetic of the band like the, a lot of those bands had that as an aesthetic like they wanted to have a very sort of overwhelming right out presentation
0: but is that what you do i mean isn't like big black sort of like that as well
2: yeah and i mean our aesthetic was pretty raging but but then i've also worked on a lot of very modest music like there's a band called low who are i like the, that music i like them very yeah. beautiful yeah and very very you know I, I you could say modest but it's i think it's also quite intense yeah and i think that you know that presentation is as difficult and as much of a challenge or as much of an interest of mine as an engineer as doing like a ripping rock record is you know i've done a bunch of records with a singer-songwriter from new york named nina nastasia uh-huh. and she's done some records where it's just her singing and playing a guitar and some records where it's her and as many as nine or twelve people playing in a very large ensemble and there's a thread of continuity right her aesthetic it right. survives through all those different changes and each of those settings requires different things from an engineer but i find that very gratifying to work on as well like i i don't i don't i don't think that i have a single aesthetic right. no, that i, I want I, to apply to yeah. other bands I, what i like to think is that i'm sensitive to what they're trying to do and i have enough of a of a technical experience that i can pull off what they're trying to get at, and also you know. an appreciation of music yeah i think that's less important though uh-huh. i mean it, what we were talking about before I am trying not to form an opinion. No, about I get the music that. I get
0: that. Like, but been in talking about you as a person and I'm not arguing with you that the same spirit that brought you to Chicago to appreciate all these different elements, you know, is it, it's within you. I mean, there's, yeah. there's part of you. If it's not Gordon Lightfoot, which you can even <laughs> contextualize, yeah. you can say like, I,
2: I see this. Right. And, and like I said, I mean, as I've matured, I've even, I mean, if, if Gordo called me, I would probably say <laughs> yes. <laughs> but like the, the point <laughs> being that I feel like, uh, I, I wouldn't have stuck with music if music wasn't important to me. I probably would have done something else that had a technical capacity. Like I could conceivably have satisfied myself as a photograph retouch artist for the rest of a of a of an extended career. Do you still <laughs> take pictures, or did you take Not, pictures? It's been a long time. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't really.
0: But like I guess sort of a, you know maybe it's just my personal what I'm bringing to it because I look at you know the number of of albums you've produced, which is hundreds, right? Thousands, maybe thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah of all different levels. Yeah. Um, like they're ones that I know and I know where the artist was before they recorded with you and and where they were after like someone like Nirvana or like PJ Harvey Mm -hmm. or, and now like in looking at the John Spencer stuff and the breeder stuff, like, and like for me, like, you know, if I listen to the difference between, did you didn't do dry? Did you? The PJ Harvey one? Yeah. You did that one. No, 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 I didn't do dry. I did rid of me. Right. Like the difference between dry and rid of me is profound. So in my mind, I'm like, well, Steve must've done that.
2: Well, but the, and then if you listen to the other records, that other PJ Harvey records, like the, there's a pretty dramatic personality shift between every record. Like, yeah, no, you know, I see that now. Polly, yeah. at the point that I did the the PJ Harvey record, PJ Harvey was a band, a functioning three piece band. Right. Uh, the name of the band was PJ Harvey. Right. Right. Shortly thereafter, it PJ Harvey became a, a solo performer, Polly Harvey. Right. And the band identity didn't exist anymore. So. She made radical changes between each of her records at, as an individual. I worked on the last record that she did where it was the original incarnation of a band. Right. And then she broke away from that and became a solo performer after that. Right. And so her solo records were all constructed sort of individually. Right. I think I am I am sensitive about get getting credit for right. aesthetic decisions that the bands and the musicians make
0: well i think that's that's... because
2: i because i i'm aggressive about not participating in those decisions right so if you like if you listen to a record and you think wow that was really brilliant the way they did that with the music there that's not me yeah that's them right you know well that's i think that's that takes some humility huh well i mean it's part of it is there's a there's a careerist aspect to being an engineer or producer where in the mainstream paradigm of record labels in the music business people use their professional capital in different ways and but first you have to accrue that capital you have to become responsible for a hit or a success or something right so you have to claim authorship of it somehow and then you have you know then you have some professional capital which you can then use to extend your career right i've never been interested in a career in that sense i just i like my job i want to keep doing it you know
0: and this is why you
2: notoriously don't sign on for the royalties yeah i don't take royalties on records that i work on partly because i think it's a it's part of a system that exploits the musicians yeah. and, and artists in a way that I'm, I'm just not comfortable with right but also i just don't feel like my my job warrants it there's a there's a a true a, a fundamental thing that i've noticed about the music scene which is that whenever anyone wants to be paid a percentage for whatever it is it doesn't matter whether it's a you know management booking agent you know promoter or whatever whenever somebody wants to be paid a percentage of what would otherwise be your income that person is being overpaid yeah right no (laughs) I understand that and I feel like not participating in that system makes it easier for me to get to sleep and also means that the differential like the money that would otherwise have gone to me that's going to the band, and mm-hmm. I feel good about that. Yeah. I feel good about knowing that the members of Nirvana, for example, are a couple million dollars richer as individuals. It's their music, it's their record. Mm-hmm. They they deserve that money. They did. They made those records, and they you know they lived that experience, right? Right. So they deserve that couple extra right. million dollars that I didn't get, right? Right. And uh, and it's not like I'm hurting. You know, right. it's like I can still make rent. You know, yeah, yeah, I just yeah. keep doing my job and I keep getting paid. You know.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well, I think that's uh, the strength of character that you've decided
2: for yourself, and and it's uh, commendable in a way. I mean, I appreciate that, and that's a very nice thing to say to me and about me, but I can also, I also feel like it's just an observation, like other people have not, maybe haven't realized that they're exploiting other people. Right. Other people, and it's very easy to... to, We chose not to play along with the paradigm that was feeding everybody. Yeah, but it's easy to either feign ignorance or prefer ignorance in a situation like that where you you know
0: but another producer might just as as easily as you say that it's the band's record would say like well i i produced that record i'm part of it
2: okay you know yeah i mean okay i mean if if the producer if if he was that important or if he was that big of a factor well you think
0: george martin would say like you know i don't deserve any of that beatles money
2: now bear in mind george martin came from a completely different political organization of the music scene in the early late 50s early 60s there was a uh, a hierarchy within the corporate structure right. of a record label where a producer was a staff person okay. who was responsible for making records and he picked the artists picked the songs right. picked the studios made right. the arrangements blah 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 so completely different paradigm okay right so yeah. and in his in in that paradigm that compensation scheme probably made sense because he was much more of an authority and he's on in the system and he's in the system yeah like I, I'm I get it not part of that right but in if you talk about contemporary producers like people who make music now, there are a couple of different kinds the term has evolved in meaning like there are people who make completely finished backing tracks and then they can apply a vocalist over any portion of that track. And to, to finish it, to complete mm-hmm. it. And in that sense, those people are authors of mm-hmm. that music. Right. Right. But when a band comes in with a song that they wrote four years ago that they've been playing on the road and that they, you know, is like an embodiment of their aesthetic. Yeah. And like, and they knock that song out in two takes. And I, I just sit in the chair and hit record. There's no way that I deserve more than just a, an hourly wage, right. basically, yeah. for, for what I've done, you know. And, and that's the situation that I'm in most commonly. Is huh. I'm just, I'm recording what a band is doing organically.
0: And you're making it sound the best you can. Yeah.
2: And, you know, that's just boils down to you, co- and competence. And you call, right. You
0: yeah. call yourself a recording engineer. Sure. Yeah. Over a producer.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I've seen producers in action and they're like bossing people around and telling people to, you know, yeah. you know, yeah. Keep the hi hat a little more peppery off the top, you know, shit like that. Uh, like, uh, it's not something you say. No, of course not. So, like that sort of stuff. If you're in, if you're doing that, then I'm proud not to be associated with that. Now,
0: you know? in like, uh, I mean, the the what are the the biggest records that you were involved in in your mind? Like, I know that in utero that was the one that you got. That was the last one, and they came to you.
2: Yeah. When you say biggest records, I are, I presume that you're talking about like their their financial. No, not necessarily this
0: thing. is what you think you know, I well well that that example's big, but, right. but that was a big change for them and
2: it's a it's a significant record for them. Okay. I'll give you two records that are really big for me. Mm-hmm. I did a record, oh god, it's a couple of years ago now, um for uh a guy named John Grabsky. Mm-hmm. He um he had been given a terminal cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. after having beaten cancer previously right the cancer reasserted itself and it, it was he had a terminal diagnosis right he had two options in his treatment he could maintain a sort of normal quality of life yeah for a relatively short period or he could maybe extend his life by being very aggressive with the treatment right at the expense of much lessened quality of life yeah and he chose to live his life as normally as he could And let the cancer take its course but he was going to try to be productive in the months that he had left or months or weeks whatever it ended up being and he contacted me and said he wanted to make an album documenting his relationship with the disease and that's how he wanted to spend his last months on earth was making this record that was going to be a statement about his relationship to the disease so he and his brother came to the studio and we recorded an album and we finished it and it got mixed and it got released and the album is out under the 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 name of the band is teeth and the album is called the strain and it's an incredible record it's a great record it's a brutal record and it's a really eyes-open assessment of his you know they, they call it a struggle it's not a struggle it's a relationship it's his relationship with the disease from the inside Mm -hmm. right and it's like a it's a kind of a um like a a war correspondent giving the rest of the world a synopsis of the action Mm -hmm. along with him just expressing himself about his you know his emotional state and his feelings and his fear and his you know everything everything tied into it it's a, it's a really remarkable album so that record's really big for me Mm -hmm. the fact that i was able to do that record with that guy in the last months of his life and his uh, his approach to life and his uh, his um, commitment to staying on it rather than being passive or rather than making making accommodations to the disease. That was inspirational to me. Again, it was one of those things like listening to that Ramones record. It changed the way I saw the whole world and the range of possibilities that I could have. Mm-hmm. So that's a big record for me. Um, a few years earlier, um, uh, Kim Deal had been contacting me about making a record, a breeder's record, or a record under the name of the breeders. She had been, she'd gone through a bunch of personal stuff. She had had her band, her actual band, the breeders had kind of dissolved under her. She tried to mount another version of that band and that was a failure. Mm -hmm. She had burned through a whole bunch of money. Yeah. It was kind of at the end of a rope with respect to that relationship. And um, we got started making this record and she was suspicious of me as she had grown to become suspicious of other recording engineers who had been trying to like sort of hoodwink her into doing things in ways that she didn't want to and that re- reopened our relationship uh, we hadn't really interacted much since the first breeder's record that i worked on which one it was called pod yeah oh yeah yeah that's a good record and then, that's the one with the cover of a, a of, uh, uh, no, happiness uh, is a warm yeah down, yeah, yeah yeah like yeah so and in the intervening years she had seen all you know her a lot of changes in her personal life, yeah. she'd, you know. Battling this get, and that, yeah. Yeah, gone through a bunch of shit, Yeah, right? If that session had gone poorly, like if if she hadn't been able to reanimate the breeders at that point, um, I I shudder to think what she, what other things might have gone wrong. For her. For her, but we had a very successful session we carried on with more she formed a new version of the band around the success of those initial sessions we recorded some with that band she carried on and since then she's made several breeders albums some of which i haven't worked on which record was that this was a record called title tk uh-huh. and that record uh reinvigorated my relation or reestablished my relationship with kim she's become a dear friend I have an enormous amount of respect for her and her aesthetic and her perseverance through all the bullshit that she's been saddled mm-hmm, with. Mm-hmm. And um so that that record stands out to me as as an important record. And then so those are two specific records, but they kind of hint at a thing where I've I've worked with some people over a very long period of time and many many sessions with these people and they've become kind of woven into the fabric uh, we've each sort of gotten woven into the fabric of our lives. And that those relationships to me mean more than the records, which is little artifacts sure. along the way right. of a relationship. Right. So, um, so what I'm most proud of are those relationships, those longstanding relationships yeah. where I are, it's not just that I'm working with somebody again and again, it's, it's that, you know, the, the whole range of experiences that was hinted at to me, by the you know the idea of punk rock as expressed by the ramones whatever all of that is all true like i i get to experience all of these life experiences i get to have these long you know meaningful friendships and professional relationships that transcend any you know any artifact that that you make along the way those are that those are the things that matter to me that's beautiful Oh,
0: yeah. But I mean, it wasn't always like that, was it? I mean, that's something that sort of evolved as you evolved as a person. Yeah. I mean, it, emotionally. it,
2: it probably took me 20 years to be ready to realize that the actual records aren't that important, mm-hmm. you know, and I and I genuinely feel like the actual records are not that important. Like, it's nice when there's a good record and I'm proud of doing a good job and all that sort of stuff. But the the records are signposts along, uh, um, you know. Uh, Your life and the life of exactly. others. and and... Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm pleased that I have gotten to experience all the things that I've gotten to experience along the way. And and like it you know we talked about
0: you know early on like cuz it, it struck me that in looking back at, at at who I thought you were that there was you know an intensity and an anger and uh and and a, a, a sort of like a a person that was sort of um uh you know just
2: ready to explode. <laughs> and <laughs> well I mean it I should point out that I've managed to steer clear of all of the things that I might otherwise have been frustrated by and angered at, you yeah. know, like the conventions of the mainstream music, music business. Like, uh-huh. I just don't operate that way. So I'm never frustrated by it. Like, uh-huh. like, and booze and drugs was never your thing. No, I mean, I, I stopped drinking when in my twenties, I yeah. just realized I I didn't like being drunk. I didn't yeah. like, and I was a dick to other people when I would right. drink and it just it wasn't i it wasn't like I gave anything up right right, like, right, a lot of people that I know have like i I'm very lucky that I never developed a taste for right. alcohol because right. of, because I was
0: a real prick you know <laughs> and you saw i mean I have to assume that over the the arc of this career and talking about some of your close friends that this was not you saw it you yeah. saw the ravages yeah. and you saw it in every i met in every manifestation i yeah imagine.
2: and it it you know I've seen people who have lost things more important to them for the sake of indulging uh you know the addiction a a chemical uh, which is tragic but i also have seen people who for whom uh, an identity as an addict or an identity as a drunk or whatever that is a part of their personality that they cherish like they feel like you know being in that spectrum is part of what defines them mm-hmm. and they feel like if they lose that then they're losing something important about the way they see the world or the, the way they interact with it and i'm i'm not going to judge that is wrong you sure know?
0: right well you seem like a, a, a reasonably happy
2: yeah yeah I, th- I think like i said i'm i i've tended to avoid those yeah. things that could you frustrate me. you have kids i have no kids none that i know of anyway uh-huh and and i know that you play professional poker a bit yeah, I I would consider myself semi-professional. I can't I mean, if I tried to make a living as a poker player, it would probably be a, a pretty meager living. And was
0: it but it was just something you were interested in and you enjoyed doing. I've played
2: cards my whole life. I just yeah. I, it's a tremendously stimulating game. I I I enjoy the I I'm not a competitive person right. by nature. Like, yeah. you know, I I don't necessarily want to beat anybody else. Uh-huh. I just want I want to do things well. I want, to, I want to do something well myself. Right. So I'm, I'm not as concerned about beating somebody else as I am about, you know, doing things correctly or doing things well myself. And poker is a place where you have, uh, you know, there's very pretty obvious scoreboard. You sure. know, <laughs> like, it's <laughs> like if you ha- if you leave with more money than yeah. you came with, well, then you're, you know, you're, you're doing something right. I,
0: I know you sort of have a, 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 a kind of a proletariat sort of uh, view of your job, but are there people that, you want to work with
2: that you haven't oh sure i mean it, like is there someone out there you're like i love to record that <laughs> i get asked i get asked this question a lot and i have this i've had the same oh yeah the same I mean, laundry it, list I the same was... well what, my point being if any of this was ever going to happen yeah it, it would have by now probably <laughs> you know <laughs> like yeah i can't i couldn't count the number of times that i've said you know it Neil Young, give me a call. You know? Right, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But Willie Nelson, you know, sure. hit, hit Google. I'm very easy to find you know? <laughs> and, and affordable. Yeah, <laughs> but uh but you know, I did get the experience of recording the the Stooges, who were you know. Oh, they did the weirdness, right? Yeah, I did an album with them, and that was an experience that I I I wouldn't trade for the world. Like just hanging out with the Stooges for a month was. Maybe the coolest thing I've ever done. I can't claim to being that cool of a person. Right. But hanging out with the Stooges every day, like just when just hearing Iggy's voice over the intercom, you know, when you ring the doorbell, yeah, it's Iggy. It's like fucking, (laughs) it's the best, you know, you just like, if I could time travel back to 15 year old me and say... You know, don't worry about all this bullshit one of these days you're going to get to record this dude's album it's going to be great you know and it was exactly the experience you would want you know like Iggy was like huge personality he had his shirt off the whole time he had his like, shirt off in here yeah <laughs> you know he's like he's he's wrought iron that guy that's exactly what he is what you think iggy pop is what you think uh, the kind of a dude you would like to like if i ran into iggy pop what it, what would it be like that's what it's like yeah, you it's, know it's better than you yeah. think.
0: like i was surprised at how articulate and how good his memory is oh, and how
2: intelligent yeah. he is and how he's framed his life it's amazing and you know and the other guys and seeing for and particularly for ron and scott like they're they're both gone now but oh, yeah. like but they had always been kind of shortchanged, like their band it was their band you know yeah. and their they never really achieved any kind of like significant success during the initial iteration yeah. of that band like they were they were known by other musicians but right. like they weren't celebrated right and to see them see their band like re and like sort of reanimated right. like that in its original incarnation like this is the band that we always wanted and we've got it back and we're playing to sellouts every night, and people love us. Like that, just that was very satisfying for them to see, like their ambition for their themselves, like see it, see it realized like that. You know, in a very tangible. After way. so many years, yeah. After after so long, to like just to get another bite at the apple was just. I thought that was really really great. You brought up uh, Bill Hicks. Did you know Bill? I didn't know him. My my wife knew him quite well. My oh, wife, really? Yeah, my wife has worked in the comedy world for. Uh, quite a long time do i know her heather winna she uh she managed i want to say the funny firm in chicago and the laugh factory in chicago for the last uh 15 years 12 15 years she's been a manager at the second city Uh uh-huh and uh so she she knows all the comics that used to come through and all those places where she worked yeah uh, and so i i've I've interacted with a lot of those people uh, but i i didn't know bill but he had a he had an influence he seems
0: like in terms of your spirit that there's definitely a a similarity in. in.
2: yeah i mean every all the stories that i'm and um there's a guy that used to work at our studio is a guy named john novotney he he was a stand-up in chicago and he um he and bill were friends and yeah like the stories that i've heard from heather and from john about bill um mean you know i i appreciate how genuine he was like he's another one of those guys like You know, you see his comedy, and you get a sense of his perspective, and you wonder what what he would be like as a person. And then it's nice to hear from people that knew him directly that he was basically the same dude. Same
0: dude, a little sweeter. Yeah, like you know in one-on-one so what's your relationship with comedy did was that part of it like i know that you thought the ramones were funny but when you were a kid was comedy sort of a
2: a thing i can't really say that i was that embedded in the comedy culture right like like i know there was a period where comedy was like sort of in its heyday in the late 80s early 90s where there was like a the stand-up thing was yeah 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 well yeah the the boom a right to you know a route to some sort of stardom yeah i didn't really participate in it or i didn't know anybody that did but In the ensuing years, through Heather and Uh her friends, I've come to meet a lot of people who ended up being kind of significant comics. There's a guy um, who used to work in the... He was in a band, and he used to work in the clubs in Chicago named Fred Armisen, who's... I know Fred, uh, yeah. yeah. Terrific, terrific dude. And he honed his comic skills by, like mocking and and playing with all the people in the in the he used to work at a lo- club called Lounge Jacks which is uh-huh. a, a club where all the bands would tour through and yeah and he would like play pranks on the bands and he would you know like that's yeah. that's where a lot of his comic sensibility came from right and uh and he's a musician himself he, yeah he was yeah. a drummer in a band called Trenchmouth and um so it, it was seeing him go from being just like Fred from Lounge Jacks yeah. to being this like international star television star like um that's one of the most amazing things that i've ever witnessed up close you know it's like he's the first person that i've ever known that wanted to become famous and then like through strength of will and being funny made himself famous it's pretty astounding isn't it so you're in town playing we played uh, a couple of nights we played at the echo and we played at the regent theater last night and uh, now my wife and i are just taking a day off to goof off well it's a real honor talking to you buddy oh thank you thanks for coming no problem
0: There you go, the man, the force of nature that is Steve Albini. I hope that satisfied most of your needs out of a conversation with Mr. Albini. Go to WTF Pod for all your WTF Pod needs. Not touring much because I'm working on a thing that I can't talk about yet. What's that noise? You want guitar? I I made up a riff that I like, and and I think um, I will uh, play it for you now. Hmm.